And finally, turning in our Bibles backwards just a little bit to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter number 2. And picking up at verse 15, we're going to read down to verse 21. When the angels went away from them, the, the shepherds out in the field, they went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Loved ones, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. If you want to follow along this morning, there's a sermon notes page in the bulletin. It has a quick little summary uh, and then some points for you to, to ponder and to write out uh, if you'd like to take notes. Well, today is uh, the, uh, the confluence of days. It's the last day of the year. So today is old years, we might say, uh, as we are looking forward and looking toward to a new year. Plus, the new year, our worldly, secular, just ordinary life day of new year, is also in church history, the Christian celebration of the circumcision of our Lord and Messiah, Jesus. So the new year is that circumcision. So since today is December 31st, we're not going to be here tomorrow uh, we're going to celebrate uh, this wonderful truth of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Uh, the world is busy making plans for tonight's party. No doubt waking up with a hangover from their last bender of 2023. Others are making another list of resolutions. How to do better. I've got to do this more. I've got to not do that so much. I've got to change this habit. I've got to kick this thing I just can't do. People are making a list. They're checking it twice. And they're going to try really, really hard after they wake up from their bender uh, tomorrow morning. Others are thinking about their favorite football team. College bowl season is among us. The playoffs uh, begin, I believe, this coming week. Uh, the beauty of viewing time, though, as Christians, is that we do so through the lens of the gospel and we even use the historic Christian calendar to help us do that. And the beauty of viewing time as Christians through the lens of the church calendar is it brings us back again and again to the one thing that should be our only New Year's resolution. What is that? What should be our only New Year's resolution? We, we all want to work out more starting tomorrow. We all want to eat less junk. We're going to throw it out probably. Uh, we all want to do this more and do less of that more. But what's the one resolution that we should, as believers, always have? It's this, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen? We're going to fail. You are going to fail in your New Year's resolutions as a believer. 
And if you're not a believer and you have resolutions to be a better person, you're going to fail. That's why we have annual resolutions, because we failed the year before. But the one thing, the one person who is constant in all of our failures is Jesus Christ. And so our goal should be to know him and to know him as he's crucified for us. And so as we're here on old years, looking forward to new years, we're celebrating not just another year. We do. We give thanks to God for his providential hand uh, in our lives this past year. We're not just here to, to give thanks and maybe throw up a little prayer for our favorite college football team. And we're certainly not here to celebrate, and it's not my job this morning, to whip you up into excitement to keep that list of resolutions. You probably maybe even have it in your head. It's not my job to tell you how to do better. I'm not going to tell you how to do better. Okay, I, can't, I can't do that. But I'm here to tell you about Christ. We're here to celebrate, to commemorate, to contemplate the Christmas miracle that the Son of God, who has no years, he's eternal, he was made human for us and was circumcised for us. Kind of strange, but that's a part of the gospel. And we might say, celebrate, how can I celebrate what I don't even know? What's circumcision? And what does that have to do with me? And why did Jesus undergo this strange ritual? One of our former old writers, John Calvin, helps us, and he said this, as long as there's separation between Christ and us, all that he suffered and performed for the salvation of mankind is useless and unprofitable to us. To communicate to us what he received from his Father, he must therefore become ours and dwell within us. And we, on the other hand, are said to be grafted into him and to put him on. For as I have observed, whatever he possesses is nothing to us until we are united to him. In other words, loved ones, this means hear and embrace the gospel today as the very words of Jesus to you, saying to you, I was circumcised to consecrate your souls. Here in these passages today that that's the word of God for your heart and for your soul and for your life. That Jesus says to you, I was circumcised, I was cut off so that you might be consecrated, that you might belong to God. That's the gospel. He was circumcised, he obeyed the law so that you might be saved. Well, what was circumcision in the first place? We've got to go back uh, into the, the, uh, the biblical way back machine, so to speak, and Learn what, or relearn what circumcision is and was. And we go back to a very familiar passage, one that should be known to us as we went through Genesis a little bit ago. So Genesis chapter 17, our first reading this morning. And this is when the Lord identified himself to Father Abram as El Shaddai, God Almighty. I am. Notice always the, the pronouns that God uses. It's always the very first, it's that, it's that first person personal pronoun, I. I am El Shaddai. I am the Lord, God Almighty. And he renews here to Father Abraham his berit, his covenants. And notice he changes the name. And they're, they're, because of this, the traditional practice amongst the Israelites was when a male child was circumcised, at that moment they would give him a name. And that's why we read in Luke 2 that when he was circumcised, they called his name Jesus, as the angel 
had said. So here is the Lord, God Almighty. He, re- he reiterates, he renews, he refreshes, he reminds Abram of the covenant, the barit, that he made with him. He changes his name from, Abra- from Abram to Abraham, the father of a multitude. And he gives him a visible sign of the promise, this sign and seal as we describe it. It's called a sign here in Genesis 17, a seal in Romans 4. God gave a promise, and then there's a visible thing that Abram and all the male children throughout their generations could see in their bodies that God made a promise to them. Note how El Shaddai speaks of the covenant here. Notice verse 2, verse 3, 7, 10, 13. I make my covenant. Notice that language. I make my covenant. God creates and God initiates covenants. His people just receive them. God enters into this relationship with Abram, Abraham, and Abram is just the recipient of it in the same way with us. I make my covenant. Notice that. It's not our covenants. It's not our mutual covenant that we've both come to terms and we both have agreed on the conditions of this covenant. No, God makes covenants. God's covenants in this context, it's gospel. It's God who's making the the covenant. It's God who's entering into this relationship. It's God who's making the promise to Father Abraham, and he just receives. Now notice the covenant that that the Lord makes with Abraham, uh, El Shaddai with Abraham. Notice it's the promise of a people, first of all. The promise of a people. Verse 2, I may multiply you greatly. I may multiply you greatly. Again, verse 4, You should be the father of a multitude of nations. You should be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I, notice again, it's it's the Lord. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. Notice that's God doing all the work here. And this even involved, as I mentioned, the, 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 the change of name. Abram's name, your name shall be Abraham. Notice again, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So there's a promise of a people. Not just Abram, Abraham, and not just his son uh, Isaac, and not just his son Jacob, but a multitude of peoples, as many as the stars and the sand. A people. But there's also a promise here of a place. Those people have to live somewhere. A place. Verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. Notice that again, it's God doing the work. It's God giving and God gifting Abram and his offspring with a place. So there's a people, there's a place, but most of all, this covenant had the promise of El Shaddai himself, his own person, we might say, himself. I will establish my covenant, verse 7. There's that language again. Between me and you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant. Why? Notice verse 7 again. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And he sums it all up in verse 8 so beautifully. Here's a summary of the covenant that God made, that El Shaddai, God Almighty, made with Father Abraham. I will be their God. I will be their God. Notice that again. God unilaterally and graciously states this as a promise, as a fact. I will be their God. Now, in response, Abraham and his descendants were, notice verse 9, to keep my covenant. They were to keep 
the Lord says, my covenant. How? How is Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then the tribes, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites, how were they to keep the Lord's covenant? Notice verse 12. Every male who is eight days old, verse 10 and 12 say that whether they were born in the house of Israel or born in, so uh, they came from somewhere else, they were a foreigner. Verse 10, they shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Every male, eight days old, and if you just happen to be an adult that came into the covenant, then you too had to be circumcised. Why? Notice verse 12 tells us why. Right? There's a how there, how they keep the covenant. It's by circumcision. But why? Verse 12, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's what circumcision is and was. The Lord, El Shaddai, God Almighty, made a covenant promise with Father Abraham and his descendants, and in return, they were to give their eight-day-old male children to receive this physical sign in their flesh that they belonged to the Lord, that he was their God, and they were his people. But what does that have to do with us as Christians today? It has everything to do with us, doesn't it? What does circumcision have to do with me? Everything. You're a Christian, right? How do you read your New Testament unless you understand the Old? You can't make any sense of the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. You can't make sense of the, of the New Testament. It's all the, the various branches of doctrine and theology and, and ethics and, and, and how to live your life as a Christian. You can't make sense of all that stuff in the New Testament unless you grasp that the roots of the, the New Testament are found in the Old and unless you understand that your roots are there as well. You've got to grasp the Old Testament to make sense of the new. We as Christians have to grasp that our roots are Father Abraham, and more than that, the Lord, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we've studied Genesis twice as a church in 23 years. For some of us, we have. Uh, Exodus, we've went through Exodus before. We've gone through Leviticus. And coming in a couple of weeks, we'll be in Numbers in our Bible study. So... Come learn your roots. Come know what it is to, to be a Christian rooted in the Scriptures. So that's what circumcision was. Well, why was Jesus circumcised? That's our Gospel reading, Luke chapter 2, verse 21, uh, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised. How many Gospels are there, children? How many Gospels are there? You turn to your Bible, you turn to the New Testament, how many Gospel stories are there? You guys, all, I'm sure you know this. Emmanuel knows. Okay, Emmanuel, want to tell us? Four. Good job. Four. And what are they? Who can name the names? Sadie, can you name the names? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I know Leon can. I, I, won't, I won't embarrass him, though. Matthew. Matthew's the first one. Mark. Luke. John. Good. Four Gospels. Four Gospel stories that... Tell us about Jesus and who he was and what he did and why it's so important for us. Now, in those four Gospels, do you know how many of those Gospels tell us that Jesus was circumcised? It's just this one little verse. That's it. One Gospel tells us 
Now, we, of course, we know that he was circumcised, but only Luke mentions this fact. And notice it's uh, the way in which he mentions it. It's a passive verb. Uh, the, the action is that he was named. But it was when he was circumcised, he was named by his parents, Joseph and Mary. Why? Why was he circumcised? Why did God make him to be circumcised? Well, let me just say a couple of things about that. As the Messiah of Israel, first of all, why was he circumcised? As the Messiah of Israel. Jesus was obligated to be circumcised. Joseph and Mary were obligated to have him circumcised. Like all other faithful Israelites, That last verse that I read from Genesis 17 says that any male who was uncircumcised in the foreskin of their flesh would be cut off. So you had a little bit of skin cut off or you were cut off. The one was a blessing to belong to the covenant people of God. The other one meant to be cut off, meant to be what? Meant to be cursed. And verse 12 tells us, Genesis 17, that every male eight days old. How old was Jesus when he was circumcised? Luke 2.21, eight days. On the right day, the required day, the, uh, the obligatory day, he was circumcised all so that he would be a faithful Israelite. So that we are, we are seeing then that, that he, although he's the son of God, and we believe and we know that the scriptures tell us that he was conceived sinless, and so he's not just the Son of God and not just an ordinary baby. He's the Son of God in perfect human flesh and soul, without any sin. Perfect God, perfect man. But yet, he was undergoing these rituals and these laws for us, for our sake, for our benefit. Secondly, then, that brings us to that second little sub-point, As the Messiah of Israel, Jesus underwent circumcision, not for himself. Again, he's the son of God. He's a perfect man, a perfect human being. Not for himself, but for that of sinners. He undergoes this rite, this ritual, this sacrament, as we call it, not for himself, but for sinners. And so we read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 10. You can turn there if you'd like to. But in Deuteronomy chapter number 10, Moses, the Lord through Moses to the Israelites out in the wilderness, as they're getting ready to enter the promised lands, says to Israel that they were to have their hearts circumcised. Their hearts were to be circumcised and not stubborn and not stubborn, we're told there. Why? Look look at verse 16 in Deuteronomy 10. Circumcised, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Notice that. It's not the foreskin of your body, but your heart. And be no longer stubborn. Who was stubborn? The Israelites. (laughs) Right? The Israelites. Now, these are the second generation. These are the kids, the grandkids, the third generation even, of that generation that was stubborn. So don't just have your body circumcised. That's not the end of the story. Your heart must be circumcised. Your whole body and your soul, your entirety of your being must be set apart, consecrated to me, the Lord says. And 
don't be stubborn like that wilderness generation that came up out of Egypt. Have the foreskin of your hearts circumcised. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you want to turn there as well, chapter 30, uh, it, 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 it foresees this day to come when all these blessings and these curses of God's covenant were going to be called to mind by this second generation of Israel as they were out amongst all the nations. We read there verses 1 and 2. So they were going to remember all that God had said in his law. There are blessings for those who obey and there are cursings for those who disobey. For those who have their hearts circumcised, blessing. For those who are stubborn like their parents, cursing. And they're going to remember all this. Why? Because that generation sinned. Remember that. We went through that a few weeks ago in our sermon through Deuteronomy. That generation that left Egypt sinned. And God had them wander around for 40 years until they all dropped like flies to, bring, to purify the congregation, to bring them into the promised land. In that day, Moses says, they would return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice because they had disobeyed at one point. And all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 2. Right? That language of loving God with heart, soul, mind, strength. Circumcising the foreskins of your, of your heart is equivalent to loving God and neighbor with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look at verse 6 of chapter 30. And the Lord your God, notice this now, in chapter 10 it was, you circumcise the foreskins of your hearts. Right? It's a way of saying, give yourselves to God, consecrate yourselves to God, repentance and faith. But in verse 6, we read this, that when they enter the promised land, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, here's the purpose of that, you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Now, this happened. This happened. And they entered in. We're going to see next Sunday, Lord willing, in the time of Joshua, they entered in. But what happened? Right? Our, our New Year's resolutions. We have the best of intentions, don't we? We have the best of intentions to have a resolution to do this, to do that, not to do this, not to do that. But we're going to fail. They went in and they failed. And you read that in the entirety of the Old Testament. They failed. They failed again. They failed again. And the Lord continued to be faithful to them in the midst of their faithlessness. That's why later on, way later on in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 4, when the Israelites, those in Judah, the southern part of the kingdom, when they were in Babylon for 70 years, Jeremiah 4 verse 4 said again, circumcise your hearts. Circumcise your hearts. Just like Moses told you to way back when. And so you see, circumcision in Genesis 17 was much more than just the outward ritual, the outward sign, the outward cutting off of a little bit of flesh as a sign in a body that God had made a promise. As a little Israelite baby boy grew up and learned from his parents 
that he had been circumcised on the eighth day of life. And then he was taught the laws of God at home in the synagogue. They then were growing into this idea and this understanding of living Living a life, not merely that they belonged outwardly, but inwardly, they were to be consecrated to God. Repenting of sin, believing in the Lord, and resolving to live for Him. What does that sound like? That sounds like the new covenant. That sounds like baptism, doesn't it? That we baptize our children and they grow into this understanding that, yes, they are sinners who need to repent, And yes, they need to trust in Jesus themselves, not just their parents believe, but they need to believe too, and that they must then live a new life that is a life of loving God and loving neighbor. It's the same thing, you see. It's the same thing. And so as the Messiah of Israel, Jesus underwent circumcision, not for himself, but for that of sinners. All the generations of Israel, from Moses all the way down, who had the best of intentions and who even at times obeyed the law. They had their hearts circumcised, their bodies, their flesh circumcised, yet they failed. Jesus came for all them. He came for them, sinners. And, Romans 4 says, even for the uncircumcised. Notice why he was circumcised finally, that last little bit. As Messiah of Israel, he underwent circumcision to redeem sinners. To redeem sinners. Paul the Apostle tells us that in the fullness of the times, Galatians 4 verse 4, in the fullness of the times, when God's plan and purpose for sending his son to the world had been accomplished, the last little grain of sand had fallen through the hourglass, he sent his son, and Paul says he was born under the law. He was born under the law. What does that mean? Well, Think of it like this. We identify ourselves as Americans, like what generation you belong to, right? Generation X. Katie, what's your generation? I don't even know. Your, is it Z? Uh, the Gen Zers, right? The, the downfall of America, the Gen Z, right? So, and whatever, you know, baby boomers and, you know, all, the, all these, ta- these taglines and names, right? And they're supposed to mean something, you know, well, if you're a Gen, you're Gen X, you know, uh, like, like some of us, you know, that meant that we grew up with a key because our parents were gone and both parents worked or they're divorced and we had, a, we had you know, latchkey kids, we rode our bikes or we got in a lot of trouble, right? Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So that generation uh, in, in, into which you're born, it kinda, it's supposed to mean something, at least, you know, culturally speaking. And times politicians, you know, well, he's of this generation, you know, we need new blood and we need younger people, you know, who, who understand, right? And that's so the idea that if you're born in a certain generation and that, that's going to communicate to people of, your, of that generation because they understand, they know what it's like to have grown up that way and, and to face problems, maybe personally and maybe as a nation, whether they were good, uh, good things or even bad things, they, they face those things because they are identified by that generation. It's similar to Jesus being born under the law means that he identifies and he, he knows what it's like uh, to be born as an Israelite who has all these laws of God and all this identity wrapped up in the laws of God. He knows what it's like to be a sinner, although he's not a sinner himself. He knows what it's like because he's born under that law. He's under its weight. He's under its obligations. He's under its worldview. He's under all that it means to be born under the law. 
And Paul says in Galatians 4, again, verse 4 and 5, he was born under the law, so he identifies himself with sinners. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So he came to identify himself with sinners to bring sinners out. To bring them out of sin and the curse of the law. Christ then acknowledged himself, one writer said, to be the slave of the law that he might procure our freedom. He had to be born under the law to bring us freedom. You see, God couldn't just arrive out of nowhere like a lightning bolt out of heaven and just by, by, uh, by, the, by the mere wish of his mind and a snap of his finger, everyone was saved. The way he set it up was that sinners had to be saved through a certain system of sacrifices and so forth, and so he was born under that law. First and foremost, it was shown by his circumcision. He came to be sin for us as Paul says. He came to be sin for us. Not that he was sinful, no, but he came to be sin for us. And he, as it were, was, was made under the law to be like an unclean sinner so that by satisfying the law and keeping all of its regulations, he might remove from me and from you our sins, our uncleanness, and the curse of the law that's upon us. He was circumcised as a descendant of Abraham in the place of sinners so that he could be our redeemer from sin and the curse of the law. He had to do this. These are all the prerequisites that make it necessary for him to be able to be identified as the redeemer. He did all that was necessary for us. For you, for me. But how does that benefit us? So, so he was circumcised, and, and he was born under the law, and he obeyed the law of God and, and all these things. But how does that benefit me? How does it come to me? How does that help me? It helps us in three ways. Jesus' circumcision benefits us in three ways. First, for our justification. That big word is the most glorious word in the New Testament. Our justification. That means that God, who is holy and righteous, can look upon us as unholy and unrighteous sinners and accept us as holy and as righteous because Jesus Christ, His Son, has lived in our place, in our shoes, under the law, under the curse of the law. He was crucified for us. And so God then looks upon Christ and he sees all that he's done and he then credits that to our account so that God can look upon us and say, you are my child. Because how can a holy God accept an unholy people? How can a righteous God, who is the standard of righteousness himself, how can he accept those of us who are unrighteous and who disobey him? He can do that because his son became one with us in our humanity and was, made, identify, was identified with us as sinners underwent the curse of the law upon the cross so that we can find life, find hell, uh, hope, and find forgiveness. That's justification. And so his circumcision is a summary of his entire obedience to God's laws so that we who are disobedient can be accepted by God. God gave the law to his people 
at Mount Sinai. But we know that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So God gave the law, but the law is powerless to save sinners. That's why the Son of God became man. He became obedient to the law for man, for mankind, for us. To know this Messiah, Jesus, who became obedient to the law for man, for you, is to be counted, as Paul says in Romans 4, among the blessed. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. To be blessed is to be justified, according to David in Psalm 32 and Paul in Romans chapter 4, or Rabbi Saul, right? He's expositing the Old Testament. And so when David prayed in that psalm that Paul or Saul recites, he's saying more than just that blessedness is forgiveness. It's more than just having your sins wiped away. The opposite of not having your sins counted against you is to be counted righteous. And so Jesus became one with us, not merely to forgive us of our sins, but to give us himself in all that he does for us as Messiah. His obedience to the law was for us, for you, for me. And this blessing, as Paul describes it in Romans 4, is not only for the circumcised, meaning the Jews, but also the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentiles, everybody else. This blessing of justification, of having your sins wiped away and Christ's righteousness in its place, in your place, that blessing is not just for ancient Jews, it's for every single person on the face of the planet who puts their faith in Christ. Jews and Gentiles, the whole world. And notice how Paul proves that in Romans 4. Faith, he says, not obedience to the law. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then Paul even says when that happened. So think about the story of Abraham. When did he believe the Lord, and the Lord counted it as righteousness, and when was he circumcised? Which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Which one comes first? Does he believe the Lord first, or is he circumcised first? Which one? He believes the Lord, Genesis 15. And the Lord counted that to him as righteousness. And then later on in chapter 17, which is like 25 years later, then he's circumcised. He believes and is justified first, and then he is circumcised as a seal, as a guarantee, as an assurance to him that he was righteous in circumcision. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. When he received that sign, it was as a guarantee that he was already righteous. And it was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised. Abraham is the father of all believers. Of all believers. And that's why Paul concludes in that reading this morning that the promise to Abraham and his offspring did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. And he says, if if God's declaration of righteousness comes to those who adhere to the law, then his promise is null and void. 
His promise is null. His faith is null. The promise is void. Because sinners can't obey. Sinners can't do precisely what God says to do. So the Lord asks you today, have you recognized that you have disobeyed God? Have you acknowledged to God that you have disobeyed Him? That you've sinned against Him in your thoughts, your words, your deeds? Have you acknowledged that you've disobeyed God? And even just one act of disobedience, even just one thought of disobedience, even just one word of disobedience, even just one violation, one small transgression past the no trespassing sign of God's law, just one time is enough to condemn you. Just one disobedience is enough to condemn you. But the remedy is Jesus, you see. The remedy is Jesus, who never once disobeyed God, but always, and 100% of the time, in his thoughts, his words, his deeds, obeyed, loved God, loved neighbor as himself. The remedy to you as a sinner is to believe in Jesus. Do you acknowledge that you've disobeyed God? Then acknowledge that Jesus is the only remedy He's the only one who fits the bill of 100% obedience 100% of the time. And that righteousness, that obedience of Jesus Christ of 100% thought, word, and deed all the time, his entire life, that becomes yours by faith. And then God can say that you are his son, you are his daughter, you are his child, you are justified. Amen? So how does it benefit me? Because when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, who was circumcised to obey the law... I then am counted as one who has already obeyed the law because in Christ I am righteous. And that assures me, secondly, and briefly, that assures me. Jesus undergoing circumcision in Luke 2.21 assures me that he's done everything I cannot do for myself. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, this really... It's a very powerful statement, and we might even see it like a very downer kind of a statement. He strips us of all of our powers and all of our abilities, and he says that we are hostile to God by nature. We don't submit to God's law. We cannot submit to God's law. Therefore, we cannot please God, Romans 8. It's pretty, pretty stark. But he says what the law could not do, God has done by sending his son. What the law could not do, God has done by sending his son. When he was circumcised, and I trust that to justify me, it also is a source of constant, ongoing assurance that it was Jesus who delighted to do the will of God. That it's Jesus, as we sing one of our hymns, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I should be assured by Jesus that he's done everything I cannot do. And even as a believer, you have your little list of resolutions for New Year starting tomorrow. And although you don't think of those things as saving you in any way, even in that failure, 
even the failure of your own sanctification, Jesus Christ assures you that he's done everything for you. And his circumcision does benefit us in our daily lives, our sanctification. Being beneficiaries of Jesus' circumcision means that we are called to respond in heartfelt, lifelong repentance. Remember all those verses from Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah chapter 4. Circumcise the foreskins of what? Your hearts, right? So that you would love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind and strength. Having Christ circumcised for us means that we then, having him, are called to respond in heartfelt, lifelong repentance, that we might mortify, we might put to death our sins, not just our actions, but also the lusts of our hearts, and that we might put on Christ and seek to obey his will. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter number 2, uh, that we, that he, sa- he says this in chapter 12 of Philippians 2. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, notice that, not for, not work for, but work out your own salvation. You already have salvation. Work out your salvation. Don't work for it. Work out your salvation. With fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because God is at work in you, because those verses about God circumcising our hearts, I will circumcise their hearts, because God is at work in you by the power of his Holy Spirit, giving you Jesus Christ, work out, meaning engage, apply your salvation. Love God, love neighbor. Seek to do that more. Seek to do it more. And so, brothers and sisters, Circumcision was God's sign of his promise that he was the God of the Israelites and that they were his people. Jesus underwent that as a faithful Israelite, as one who was born under the law and identifying himself with you as a sinner. Why? So that you might be justified, that you might be accepted and declared right and righteous with God. So that you might know that and be assured of that and be confident in that. And that you might more and more love him and love neighbor and go out into the world to be salt and light. And as another year is upon us, brothers and sisters, let's do that. Let's resolve to know that one resolution above all others, to know Jesus Christ. Amen? To know Christ. Let's rely on him. Let's rely on him as we go out today. And his obedience to the law for your justification, for our justification. Rely on that. And let's rest in his assuring grace that you and I are among the blessed of Psalm 32 and Romans 4 who share in his righteousness by faith. Not by the law, but by faith. So rely on Christ for your justification. Rest in Christ in your assurance. And finally, resolve to pray in faith daily that our Heavenly Father would grant us the true circumcision of His Holy Spirit, our hearts being circumcised. And with that circumcision of Christ upon us and in us, let us resolve that our hearts and all our members, our bodies, our souls, all that we are, being mortified from all worldly and carnal lusts, we may in all things obey our God's blessed will, 
and love for him who came to obey for us, our Lord and Messiah, Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, uh, we end the year with the gospel, and we're going to begin it again next Sunday with the gospel. And may that always be our theme and our song, the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. We ask that you would help us uh, now as we come to the table of the Lord to receive your assuring grace, this sign and seal that's given to us of the body and blood of Christ, which was offered for us. May it assure our hearts that we belong, body and soul, life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask it all in his name and all of God's people say, amen.